Q&A number 5 was presented by a panel on August 7, 2015 at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute, Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a nonprofit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. The following recording was made in a classroom setting, and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Well, this is a question and answer session, but it has been requested and hopefully they will consent to allowing this question and answer to be a little more wide-ranging, not just on the, on the passages, but also some questions that were asked earlier in the week that were, not, were postponed but didn't get answered, or questions that go beyond what we've been looking at. Could you get someone in, instead of me to answer those questions? <laughs> That's fine. No. That's fine. <laughs> okay, this is about when you were talking about the Matthew passage. I think it was in Matthew 27 9. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And I think you said that Matthew had taken from the passage and inserted two things. As made, an made two illusions, yeah. And I think he said that the 30 silver coins was one and, of them. And even calling the first an illusion is kind of a stretch, because in Greek it's a noun and adjective, 30 pieces of silver, 30 silver things. That's all. Yes, that occurs in the Zechariah passage, and that occurs here. Would you put it in quotes, 30 pieces of silver? In First Peter, would you put the ark in quotes when he refers to Noah's ark? I mean, I don't think so. It, he's talking about it. He's not... He's not quoting. But it is a clue that he's giving in conjunction with the next phrase, the price that was set by the sons of Israel. That's what clues us in. The 30 pieces of silver is kind of distinctive. And then he tells us the price set by the sons of Israel. Oh, Zechariah 11. That's what he's talking okay. about. So the two in combination with each other are what trigger our mind to go back to Zechariah 11, I think. Right, because that was the price that was given to the shepherd there. Exactly. Exactly, that's the wages they paid him. Right, and that's the price of the New Testament shepherd that was yeah. the undervaluing yeah. price of the New Testament shepherd. Yeah, I think so. Earl, during the break, was suggesting there may be a way of taking it to mean exactly the same thing without the 30 pieces of silver being an undervalue. So, yeah, I, I mean, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe, maybe that's true. Uh, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but he, he made a good case for that. Is 27.9 in quotes in the original Greek? Well, in the original Greek, there is no punctuation. There is no such okay. thing. Okay, well, the reason I ask, because the King James, it's not in quotations. Okay. So. Yeah, the translators and editors of our English Bibles, they're the ones responsible for all that stuff. Hmm. I'd like to have permission to go to a general question. And Rabbi Kinbar, yesterday we asked you about yourself, and you gave a you gave your seven-minute biography. It was very nicely delivered and very comfortable. You're the first leader of the Messianic Jewish movement that I've met. And uh, I'm interested in what it is and where it's going. And 
I wonder, would you just tell us some more about your personal position in Messianic Jewish movement and its, uh, your appreciation of it? And I'll take the, the three minutes that were left from the ten that I took the seven from. Well, the, mess, the modern Messianic movement started in the early 1970s by a number of Christians who were looking for deeper connections with our Jewish roots. And that, that was, although I became a believer at that time, it was a while, a couple of decades before I became involved. And my take on where it's going, did you say? Did you ask? I'll let you have your own direction. Yeah. Your appreciation of the movement and your position in it. I uh, think like most things on the earth today, it, it varies. Of course, me and my colleagues are the best part of the movement, right? <laughs> And of course, everybody thinks that, but I do think that different people coming from different directions have different contributions to make. We probably are taking the Judaism part more seriously than most of the movement, and some parts of the movement, you really Messianic Judaism. So it varies, like everything else we know varies, you know, quite a bit. As far as my role, I'm a teacher and a writer, and mostly a teacher, and people call on me, especially colleagues and other leaders, for sort of consultations about different matters. I'm sort of a rabbi to some rabbis. Does this come as news, hon? Does this come as news, that I'm a rabbi of some rabbis? <laughs> anyway, this is what I'm doing on the phone, yeah. but, and also other Messianic Jews, because um, somehow, not only in the Messianic movement, but in the church world, I've gained some wisdom over the years that applies to where people are at. Because I really believe that as important as our theological or and practical orient, that really what God is looking for is healthy communities. And sometimes I'll value a healthy community where people are respected, loved, and appreciated to one that maybe is more like I would think theologically. So that's really what I like to see in what I counsel people that for a messianism that Yes, is more Jewish, is more tied to a past and our future, but it's healthy. Thank you for just taking those extra minutes. All I intended by the question. If you have any more personal part in the, like, allow me one more direction. Where is the movement in Christianity today? Now, I'm not asking you to glorify yourself or your movement, but gosh, do you see yourself as a significant piece of history, or where is it right now? You mean the movement? Yeah, yes, I think the it movement, is, not you yeah, personally. Yeah, no, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it is significant, but I have no idea how significant or whether it's going to develop well or not. I can't predict that. I hope it does. I'm dedicating a good portion of my life and energies to it, but we just don't know how things are going to turn out in the immediate future. And thank you. The years are a blur, Craig. I can't remember when I heard about a possible Jerusalem Council II yes. coming up. Has that happened, or is it still in the making? Or There's a group called Toward Jerusalem Council too, and the goal of the group is to have a second Jerusalem Council, which does the exact, really, mirror image of the first. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 basically determined it was not a requirement for Gentiles to keep Torah, to put it simply. But now, in the church, there's basically virtually a prohibition, if not a stifling, of Jews keeping the Torah because it's always equated with as if we're seeking salvation or something by doing it, or it's just generally forbidden, and it's been forbidden for 1,700-plus years. So the idea is to get together the Christian denominations who will come together in the same place and basically declare, yes, it's legitimate for them to reduce to keep Torah. It's very simple, but it's been, they've been working on it for 20 years now, try to bring that about, and it's, it's a process. Well, who would give us the final word on that? Or how would we 
tap into that. They have a website. Oh, they do? Yes, Torah Jerusalem Council 2. Torah Jerusalem Council 2. 2, right. Thank you. This is a general question, but I've really loved this week, so I want to thank everybody, especially all the professors and tutors and, and rabbis and caterers. But I was asking Earl a little bit about the structure of the actual college. And so, and he gave some really good information, but I'd just like to know, are the classes where you actually teach the Bible, is this the format? Is this the way it's conducted? Or how is the Bible taught here at Gutenberg? To the students, it's taught in two particular ways. One is we have, as part of our curriculum, we'll read whole books or major portions of whole books and then talk about them. And most of our Bible reading is done that way. So it's in a way, it's not what we do here because we're trying to go a little deeper here. It helps the students become familiar with the Bible and what's in it and the themes that are in the Bible. And then in the discussion, of course, there's room for all kinds of stuff to come out. But we're not really carefully paying attention to the text. We don't do that with any of the books that we read at that level. But we do have what is called microexegesis and That's where we go through word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, and really try to figure that out. And we do a microexegesis in John. Is that the only biblical book? Yeah, in the Gospel of John. So in the Gospel of John, we do that. Now, correlated with Gutenberg College is Kinsey Study Center and just a whole ministry of Bible study. And our students are welcome to take advantage of that and that it's in those Bible studies that we do more careful exegesis. Okay, thanks. Put some more emphasis on Messianic Judaism. (laughs) Hey, listen, if no one else asks questions, go for it. (laughs) I want you to stay longer. People like Socrates and Kierkegaard, and I think, because I'm reading it now, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, were opportunities to reignite the truth of Christ, the opportunity to really believe not simple grace, but expensive grace, not the cheap way to get through to the meaning of Christ, but say it out loud, and even if it's Hitler in front of you, you'll be brave. Well, I do see the Messianic Jewish opportunity because I've just become aware of it recently, and I've probably been snookered into having a bad feeling about the Jewish communities that I think this is an opportunity to reinvigorate what Paul probably wanted to do in the first century to warn everybody that, hey, the Jews and Gentiles are needing to consider one another and let's go forward in big-heartedness. I'll I'll leave it open for you if I can. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to say. I agree with you. I do want to make a comment about the way that Jews are portrayed in the Bible. I've made a couple of comments in the past. I think it's important to realize that these same comments are made about the Gentile nations, but they're scattered because actually they're so far outside the pale, except for individuals, they're not in the picture. But the ones who are in the picture are Jews. So you talk about the Jews, this, and the need, and the rejection of the Messiah and all this, and it sounds really bad, and it can actually sound anti-Semitic, which I don't believe anybody means that, but if you have enough of that rhetoric, it becomes that way. And I think it's important to recognize that we're dealing with human nature, a specific instance of human nature, and not with a particularly toxic people or something like that. On the other hand, a people that it's called and chosen to the mission that they're chosen for has a higher level of responsibility. So that comes into play also. And I think it's always good to keep in mind that even in the case of Jesus and the rejection of the Messiah, 
Most Jews who were alive at that time never even heard of him, much less ever encountered him, because the, most of the Jews did not live in the land of Israel. They were in Egypt, across the Mediterranean, they were in Babylonia, and over time, things filtered through to them. But it's just, we're given a very focused picture for very specific reasons, and, but it's important to keep in mind that it's part of a bigger picture in terms of humanity, and also God's chesed, which will end up redeeming that situation. So that's kind of uh, along those lines. Do you have any more questions? When you hear the question, I grant you permission to demur. I am wondering if there is a distinctly Jewish eschatology. Distinctly Jewish? A distinctly oh. Jewish eschatology. Yeah, it's pretty simple. We have this world, then we have the distant future, which is we read prophecies about, and within which is the, are the days of Messiah. I'm sorry, did you say the days of the... Of Messiah. Of Messiah, sorry. Right, the, the Messianic age, which is followed by the age to come. There's not a lot of different events predicted within those categories. So it's primarily this world and the world to come with the Messianic age preceding, bridging the one to the other. And characterize for me the Messianic age. The age when Messiah is here. I've read a lot. I've never read any discussion of how long it is. Is that what you had in mind is the Messianic age equivalent to the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Well, I think it'll be ultimately fulfilled or finally kept in every respect in the Messianic, yeah. The land, the righteousness, the whole picture of the promise that is to the Jews through the three of them and to Gentiles through the one of them, through Abraham only. Yeah, and you see that in Ezekiel 36. It speaks of the... Jews being regathered to the land under the king and honoring God and the nations see it and all that sort of thing. All of it is brought together in several places, but in that place in particular, Ezekiel 35, 36. And one last, I think you've already made this point, but would you be surprised to see the Messianic age start tomorrow? Well, I mean, of course you'd be surprised. You mean shocked? Is there anything that you must see first, we must see first? <laughs> well, before it's interesting. The... In Judaism, there are at least three different views about what will immediately precede Messiah. Yeah. A time of complete unrighteousness, or a time of complete righteousness, or just one Sabbath kept perfectly. Oh, well, now that one's distinctly Jewish. The other two, we're right there with you. <laughs> right, right. The idea yeah. is that if the entire Jewish people were to rest for one day. Ah, uh, interesting. Now that is rabbinic tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, very interesting. Would I be shocked? Actually, yes. But only statistically speaking. I have no reason to expect that it's going to happen tomorrow, so I would be surprised. And I would be surprised that I'm stuck here rather than in Austin. <laughs> I would hope I have a chance to get back. Or we would have a chance to get back. Not that I don't like being here, Mike. Maybe I'm asking the same question he just asked. But as a Messianic Jew, looking at the book of Revelation, how would that differ from the Jews' view of the Messianic age? Oh. Well, there's no apocalyptic literature in traditional Judaism. The apocalypses were never accepted as part of the Jewish canon. And I think largely because of the detail and, of course, they all have different kinds of vision. So I don't know how, just, I've never actually heard of a rabbinic response to the book of Revelation, or responses to the Gospels and Paul's letters and things like that, but the book of Revelation just seems to be off the radar in that regard. It's just the book of Revelation, 
you know, the first time I read it, nobody told me it wasn't going to happen exactly that way, it was, that it was any symbolism or anything in it. I said, wow, it's like, this is very, this is cool, man, this is like amazing. And so over the years, trying to unravel what it all means, and one summer I spent three months examining the four major views of the millennium and how it overlaps with, with the book of Revelation. And by the time I finished, I knew less than when I started. <laughs> and I'll be frank, there's a couple of areas that I just don't feel very adept at or knowledgeable about in the book of Revelation, and eschatology is one of them. I think there's a bit of truth in the different ways of looking at it, but I don't find any one interpretation of it like really convincing yet. Depends on who talks to me. So I would just say that there's a lot more detail there in how things will work out, no matter how you interpret it, than there would be in, in Jewish in traditional writings. Oh, I can add one more thing to that. The emphasis on the Messianic age is shalom. It's peace and shalem, completeness. And so that's the emphasis on whatever works out, whatever happens, that's the goal, that's where it's going to finally settle, and that's really kind of leads right into the age to come, which is complete shalom. And in fact, the Messianic age is called an age in which every day is Shabbat, is Sabbath. Every day is Sabbath. Not in terms of the Sabbath laws, but in terms of the rest. I have a question. In Jewish thought, the thing in Peter about all will be destroyed by fire, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, is that part of traditional Judaism? Maybe they would put it a different way. There is the sense that things are going to be very, very different. Okay. There's even argument that the kosher laws won't be, that even when the temple is rebuilt, the only sacrifices will be voluntary peace offerings, and that a lot of the ritual law will be no more. So it's kind of similar to some... some now, is that in the Messianic age, the thing about the offerings, or in the age to come? It would, well, the Messianic age. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So everybody would like totally change? No, it doesn't say that people will change. It, it would say that the conditions would change. The whole idea of the government being on Messiah's shoulder, the sense of good government, like that brings peace, that, that we'll actually have that one day. Obviously, in itself, it won't bring peace, but it's part of the picture. No, they don't envision people just being dramatically different in this age, even in the Messianic period. Why were you hoping? Oh, that would be. Well, something's going to happen, yes, there has to be. Ultimately, in the age to come, there is no Torah because, well, I'll tell you when, you know what fringes are, tzitzit, ritual fringes? There are 613 fringes on them to represent the 613 commandments. And when a Jewish man dies, they cut off the fringes. They bury him in his garment, but without the fringes, because he is no longer obligated to keep the Torah. And that will ultimately be true for everybody. And so that obviously people will not need any sort of external guidance. Did that answer your question more yeah. or less? Yeah. Rabbi Carl, you've given us some great things, like what you recently were saying there about be careful of seeing the, the bad things that are going on with the Jews in the scriptures and letting that lead to anti-Semitism. There was another one I was thinking about, an example of how to think more about some of these things. If you were going to send me away with some homework, what would some of those things be? Should I seek out a messianic community where I live? Should I pick up a book and start learning about Judaism? Should I maybe just at least try to practice some festivals? What are what some? What is your goal? What do you want? Well, okay. The other part of it is, what would you like from me? 
as a person that you don't really know, but as a part of the Christian community, what is it that may bother you about what I and my fellows do? And what would you like me to change so that I might be more connected to you, even though from a distance? Uh, well, okay, not you personally. Sure. I wouldn't know that. Maybe not anything, judging from what I've heard from you uh, in sessions and things like that. When I come here to Gutenberg, there's one thing I know, that whether I speak publicly or one-on-one, that people listen. And people discuss ideas and even sometimes contend over ideas, but don't treat it like their existence is based on being right about their ideas, and they actually listen. And as a human being, this is very encouraging. And I have periods of my life or times or, or communities where I've had a certain amount of feeling if I express myself in this way, it will be heard, and maybe I could get toward the edges. In some communities, that's very large. But this is the only one where I've yet to find the edge, how far I can speak. Probably could go, you know. <laughs> but I feel I can be totally myself. What did you say? I dare you. <laughs> no, I feel I can be myself. And even though you're not my first community, right, Messianic Jews, yet you are. We're part of a Jewish and Gentile body of Messiah together. And you just seem to accept me for who I am, whether you agree or disagree with me. I'll tell you the truth, that's not what, so much I, what I care about. But being seen and heard and treated with respect as a human being, I think that's what people in our movement would like from others. Thank you. It's been my experience that three people that were a part of the Messianic community were converted to Judaism. So I don't understand that. Three people? Yeah, three, oh, three people. That you yeah, know of. Sure. since I sort of got connected to a messianic movement right. in the 90s, right. there's been three people who have converted from Christianity back to Judaism. Right. Well, that's a complex subject, but just on the basic issue, why does anybody leave the faith? It's not just Jews converting to Judaism, but people are leaving the faith or joining cults or, or becoming whatever. And I've seen this uh, young couple in, uh, in Austin I was with became atheists. How do you go from being a believer in Jesus, devoted for years, and then become an atheist? So and you could talk about psychological things going on, lack of faith. I mean, I don't know what's going on inside of a person. But I just say it's part of a, a larger phenomenon. It's not just Messianic Jews converting to Judaism. That said, there is a particular reason, and that is because Judaism offers a very structured way of life, and we're living in a time when our society is becoming less structured, has less affinity with the whole idea of structures, laws, explanations, anything being set. And I think there's a lot of insecurity. And so some Messianic Jews find their security in becoming very observant. Those are the ones who convert. Now, they, don't, they convert usually to orthodoxy and not to the other branches of Judaism because the other branches are not as observant and fine-tuned as orthodoxy is. So I think it's looking for structure. I think it's the same reason why a lot of Christians these days are becoming Orthodox Christians, Eastern Orthodox, which is not perceived as an abandonment of the faith, but I think it's a similar motivation that it's much more structured than what they've known before, and they feel they need that structure in their life as a means of security for them. So that's about the best I can do, because I, other than that, I don't know. Well, listen, there is another thing, because I teach Messianic Jews all the time, and I'm quite close with many of my colleagues and all this, and many of them have not had good teaching, where they integrate the valid elements of Judaism with their faith, so what they're doing is consistent with, and so it ends up becoming two competing systems. 
which they eventually feel they must choose the one or the other. Yeah, and in one case, this friend of mine was asked to renounce Jesus. Right. Yeah, that would be typical. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I will say, on a brighter note, there are many Jews coming to believe in Jesus, and all different types, and have regular interactions with Jews who don't believe in Jesus, respectful and friendly, actually, and that's happening. It's not happening in the numbers that we'd like to see, but it is happening. And I'd like to focus on that and on the, on the other matter, just to try to be helpful to people that are undergoing that problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.